Welcome to Historias, the Spanish history podcast. I'm your host, Breton Rodriguez, and I'm speaking with Leonardo Francolanchi about the development of Romance languages as a literary language in medieval Iberia, the great medieval Italian poet Petrarch, and the creation of a specific idea of the Renaissance. First, however, a little information about our guest. Dr. Francolanchi is an assistant teaching professor in the Department of Romance Languages and Literatures at the University of Notre Dame, where he teaches Catalan and Spanish. He received his PhD in Ciencias Humanas y de la Cultura and an MA in Literary Studies from the University of Girona in Spain, as well as a BA in Philology from the University of Florence in Italy and a second BA in Romance Philology from the University of Girona in Spain. His areas of specialization are Romance Philology and Mediterranean Studies, and his research interests include comparative medieval and early modern Romance languages and literatures, that is in Italian, Catalan, Spanish, French, and Occitan, Iberian Studies, European Petrarchism, and European Medievalism. As a Romance philologist, Dr. Francolanchi is particularly invested in exploring the plurilingual and transnational dimensions of the literature produced across medieval and early modern uh, Mediterranean Europe. He is currently working on a book manuscript on the reception of Petrarch's triumphs in medieval and early modern Europe. More recently, he has carried out research on different topics of the medievalist component of 19th century European cultural nationalism. Leonardo, welcome. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. It's, it's great to have you here. I, I would like to start really, really broad, if you don't mind. So you work with a number of medieval and early modern Romance languages, as, as mentioned, Italian, Catalan, Spanish, French, and Occitan. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the early development of these languages as literary languages in the Iberian Peninsula. In particular, when do we start seeing Romance languages being utilized in literary works that would be written down? And what are some of the ways that writing in Romance languages would have been perceived as being different from writing in Latin or even writing in Hebrew or Arabic? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. That's, a, that's an excellent question and a very good starting point. It's a, it's a complicated question to answer <laughs> briefly. I think we have to think about early medieval Europe uh, and the transition from obviously Latin, classical Latin, and then uh, Vulgar Latin to the Romance languages. There's a very large period, and, and the stories are different depending which area we're um, uh, focusing on, obviously. Where, when do they start? The truth is that we don't know when, when they start being perceived as Romance language. We know when they are perceived for sure as Romance languages, but we don't know when they uh, start. So I think that's kind of the tricky part of the question. We have early written documents that are definitely written in a language that is not Latin, uh, close or not as it is, or as it was to Latin, but it's definitely perceived not to be Latin. In the ninth century uh, in Italy, um, ninth to 10th century in many other uh, parts of, um, of Europe, of course, uh, we have some early uh, poems, some marginalia, so poem written on in Latin manuscripts and, and short poems. Uh, we have some um, administrative documents, uh, bureaucratical documents that states uh, at the position from uh, a witness who's not able to uh, provide a declaration in, in Latin, obviously. And so you have Latin text, and at some mm -hmm. point you have, uh, you know, the position of somebody who's doing that in, in the, the language they speak. <laughs> we have some treaties that are bilingual 
And I think in the case of Iberia, we have a very, very interesting case, which is the, the um, Alhamiado literature, which is mm. literature that is written in Arabic and Hebrew um, alphabets, uh, but they, they, that is interpreted to be a language that is Mossarab. So the Romans languages of, uh, of the Iberian Peninsula prior to the, um, to the Muslim so-called invasion um, of 7-Eleven, right? So, um, so the Alhamiado is probably one of the very first uh, and more ancient expression of Romance languages, um, but obviously because they're written in in the Arabic or the Hebrew alphabet, there's a lot of debate and a lot of different interpretation of what that language looked and sounded like. Um, so that's kind of, I think, the, 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 the general idea. I think 9th to 10th century, most Romance languages are perceived as different than as being different than Latin, uh, but they coexist with Latin, obviously, especially on the literary side, mm -hmm. you know, so uh, the idea that those are clearly spoken um, and they have been spoken for a while by the time they're written down in documents, but in order to have literature in Romance languages, then you would have to get to the early um, troubadours and, and other um, texts. Uh, and, and in this case, I'm touching to Occitan, obviously. Okay. So so when do we start seeing those texts in, in Iberia, for instance? Like, when do we see these earliest literary texts in, in medieval Iberia? And what, what languages would they be in? So you mentioned Aksitan, right. for instance. Right. So, again, uh, it depends where we are at, obviously, because um, as, as for Spanish, for Castilian, we have Las, Las Glosas Emilianenses, Isilens. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so we have some... We have glossas, as the idea is that we have Latin text, and we have uh, either a translation of a single word or, or, or of a sentence in in what is clearly um, a old Spanish or proto-Spanish, uh, a Castilian, obviously. We have some some text in, in, in early Catalan. Um, the first text in written text in Portuguese, I believe, is a little bit later. But there's no reason to believe that Portuguese developed or was recognized by speakers later than other languages. I think it's just that we don't preserve, we don't have the documents uh, from that area, but I think there's no reason to think um, otherwise. And so, um, yeah, um, Galician, same thing. You know, we have um, some documents, we have some early form of literature, um, I think when it comes to early poetry, uh, it's a complicated question because the line between orality and literature, it's not as clear. So some of those poems that you find in Marginalia, do they belong to the oral tradition? Uh, do they belong in literature that is developed as a, uh, as a literature that is kind of a canon already? Mm -hmm crystallize in that sense it's really hard to tell obviously okay they're probably both but it's really hard to tell <laughs> no that 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 definitely makes sense um so I, I i am going to push you a little bit and just kind of to get kind of a general time frame of when we start seeing some of these things um mm -hmm. but i also do want to ask you as well it's just kind of when we when we think of the romance languages of the iberian peninsula many of us tend to focus on things like castilian galician catalan portuguese mm -hmm. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how some of the other Romance languages of the medieval Mediterranean, languages such as Occitan, for instance, 
um, might have influenced the development of these languages as literary languages during the Middle Ages. So, I mean, particularly with things like poetry, as you mentioned, how do we see maybe some of these other Romance languages shaping some of these traditions as they develop in medieval Liberia? And also, if you could just kind of give us a general timeline of when you think some of these things might start taking taking place. And I, I, I realize that all these things are, are controversial. People think different things. I'm, I'm not <laughs> I'm not trying to, to put you on the spot, but just kind of just so we have an idea of generally when things are taking place. Definitely, yeah. I, I think that the relationship between written language and literature is a lot less um, a straightforward line as we might want it to be because <laughs> it would be a lot easier to study if it was that way <laughs> but it's not how it works right so um i think that it depends where you look and i mm -hmm. think that's why we tend to talk about oh romance languages but um and and definitely we can talk about it from that perspective from a very broad perspective but it's also we're also talking about areas with very different histories um from a geopolitical, if you want, <laughs> from the medieval perspective, uh, from a geopolitical perspective. So it, it really depends. Um, I think it's hard to say there's one specific moment. Um, as I said, between the 9th and the 10th century, the language we can we see different in different parts of the Mediterranean, different parts of Mediterranean Europe, we start seeing those Romance languages. And in the case of France, obviously, we can easily depart from Mediterranean Europe and go into Northern and Central Europe, because again, they belong to that area of influence, as well as they belong to the Mediterranean one. Obviously, the Mediterranean one is at that point, um, it's, it's the language spoken is, is, is uh, Occitan in different variation. We have some variants of Occitan that are called or consider it transitional. Um, so central France, there's a series of uh, areas that are, they speak a, a, a variant of like a, a dialect, so to speak, of Occitan that is very much transitional between Occitan and Oil, so modern French, right? So again, it's hard to tell because what we rely on upon are the documents and the documents reflect an, an administrative or bureaucratic structure that doesn't necessarily reflect the reality of mm. of what was going on on the on the ground, right? So, some areas have courts, some areas have um, religious structure, like a bishop or a parish, that kind of can can shape those um, areas of influence in different ways. So, I think it's it's really it's really hard to give one specific answer. As as of as for the Occitan, I th and I think in general, I think what's very interesting um, to think about is that, and when it comes to Iberia in particular, is that the idea of Iberia being uh, an, an, a region, an area that is made of different tradition. I think it's very very important to remember that because you have the Visigoth tradition in in, in, in you know in Toledo and in mm -hmm. in Castile. On the other hand, for example, as in, in the Catalan side, they have a tradition that is very much connected to what we think as French or Carolingian at the time. And so those are very different ideas. They look at themselves in very different ways. And, and I think when it gets to Portugal, there's a clear connection with uh, Leon and with the expansion of the Kingdom of Leon, right? So 
I think it's, uh, I, I, I hope I answered the question. I realized <laughs> that maybe I departed a little bit, but um, yeah, I think that's, that's the idea. And as for the influence, I think it's also really important bec- to think about centers of power, for example, from a literary perspective, the, the idea of a standard and canonical literature, for lack of a better word, that is kind of being disseminated. And so the idea of the, the language of culture versus the oral or local language, and those are, are um, dynamics that you can see very early. I had a good example, thinking about Occitan, is, for example, the troubadours, right? So suddenly we start having troubadours that today we consider Italian. <laughs> Uh, because they were from areas that today are part of Italy, mm-hmm. um, in the north particularly, and and they write in, in, in Occitan, right? And and the same thing you can have on the Catalan side. We have a lot of writers that today are Catalan writers that, that they were troubadour writing in Occitan. The Catalan obviously is a specific case because Catalan and Occitan are sister languages, and so in the Middle Ages, the frontier between the two was not as clear as it is today. <laughs> but, you know, again, you would have uh, Gallego Portuguese in, in, in Castile with, with Alfonso El Sabio and so, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So um, the pilgrimage to Santiago brings a lot of French influence in Northern Spain and, and, so, and so forth and so forth. So I think um, it's really important to think as different systems operating at the same time and, and be layered, um, not, not necessarily in a very straightforward way all the time. Yeah, I mean, as as you were speaking, and I mean, it's I, I think you're doing a great job of just showing some of the complexity of this, right, where we have so many different traditions existing at the same time, interacting with each other in different ways. I mean, the, the example that jumped to mind as well is, I mean, you mentioned the, the Catalan troubadours writing Occitan, and I was thinking also of Alfonso Decimo, Alfonso the Tenth, Alfonso Sabio. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why I named him three times, but yeah, Alfonso the Tenth. Um, <laughs> but he's writing all these yeah. things in prose in, in Castilian, right? This early Castilian. He's you know the, this foundational figure in the development of Castilian as a spoken language in the 13th century. But he's writing his poetry in Gallego Portuguese, and I mean, there's something really mm-hmm. fascinating about that—the fact that he's making these these decisions as well, and that one would be kind of a yeah. language of prose, and one would be a language of, of poetry in, in a sense. Definitely, and I think I, I would add another element, which I think traditionally has been not think about from the perspective of European studies. And I think it's something that it has been done in the past several years. But when I think about the tradition of the scholarship, um, which is the, the, the Arabic, obviously, and the, and the Hebrew tradition, um, because Alfonso is using um, Castilian and he's using Gallego Portuguese, but at the same time, he's promoting translation from Arabic and from Hebrew texts, right? La Escuela Traductoras de Toledo, famously. So, but I think that ties into this idea, and I think it's something that we are going to get to later on. But the idea of what medieval, what what the what the Middle Ages are, where and and especially when we talk about medieval Europe and what's European and what's Europe and this idea of Europeanness, because I think that's um, that's a very interesting topic um, when we think about 
where we place the border or the frontier of what's Europe and what's not, <laughs> and what medieval Europe looked like and what didn't, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point. Um, and yeah, just looking at what they would have thought of in medieval Europe as looking at these boundaries and these regions versus what were maybe constructed in the 19th century and these this, this kind of cultural nationalism, as you talk about in, in your work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, but, definitely. And so I, I think that's a good transition as well to kind of moving forward a little bit. So we started all the way back in the 9th, 10th century, the development, the, the <laughs> earliest written record of some of these languages. We moved to, you know, the 12th, 13th, looking at some of these tributary poets, looking at Alphonse X, figures like that. And now I want to move a little bit later, even even further, and move on to Petrarch. So a lot of your mm-hmm. research talks about Petrarch, talks about his poetry. So I was wondering if you could maybe begin by just telling us a little bit about who Petrarch was. Um, also, really, why he's so important today? Why, why do we care so much about Petrarch today? Petrarch, as, as a lot of medieval author, was a lot of things. <laughs> I think we are interested in Petrarch because he is, uh, and I'm going to use a term that has been used many, many times, is the father of humanism as we understand it today. Uh, That's very true, but he's also very much a a man of his time. And so he is very much thinking about classic uh, antiquity and classic tradition, Latin tradition and, and the little Greek he could think of at the time, uh, but he's also important because he's inspiring in the sense that the recovery of a tradition that at the time in Europe was not very known, which is a Greek tradition, obviously. Um, you know, he's a definitely the, the father of humanism, but at the same time, um, he is very much involved with the politics of the time of um, the 14th century is involved with, well, I mean, he was obviously living in Avignon and and we have um, the, the papal court in Avignon. And so he is very much tied into, well, into the, the, the European context of his time, um, not only the Italian one. And I think that's also why it's very important because, because Patrick is very much a European author. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as he's as much as he is an Italian author, obviously, but you know he's writing in Italian, but he's also thinking about himself as a Latin kind of author poet, and I think that's part of the connection. But he's also operating in a very European context, or what we today think of <laughs> European context. You know, so he's constantly in, in, in what we know today is France coming from Italy. Um, so I think, and he has, because of the Latin, obviously, element, he has contacts with intellectuals across Europe. And so I think that it's also very, very important because the Patrick and, and humanism are in many ways at the, at the very core of what we think about European identity and literature again, and, and what uh, being European is. And, and he's, has a lot of poems where famously Italia Mia, um, where he praises Italy, but again, not in a nationalist sense <laughs> or in a medieval nationalist sense, which is very different from, from what we understand it today. So um, I think um, thinking about the glory of Rome, the past glory of Rome, etc. So again, a very complex personality that is that lived through a very complex historical moment, for sure. 
So, I, I mean, that, that that's great. Um, I, I have just a quick follow question to yeah. that. Would Petrarch have seen himself as European? Like, how would he have thought of himself? Would he have thought of, like, this European identity? I mean, is there that, that sense of Europeanness? I mean, he's definitely at the, these, these intellectual centers. I mean, you mentioned he's in Avignon. Um, he's there at this really fascinating time. I mean, he's in the early 14th century. Things are changing. Things are developing. I mean, how would he have, have thought of himself and his, his moment in time or kind of the, this larger community, right? Because, I mean, he definitely thought of himself as kind of, I mean, I guess Italian, but like his region of Italy, not so much kind of Italy as, as a thing. But is this, this European identity I'm, I'm curious about? Is, is there this sense of Europeanness? That's a fantastic question. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot of disagreement on this. <laughs> so probably a lot of people are not agree with me. But I think that if we think about Europe from the modern perspective, no, probably not. But, but he's recovering a dimension of Latinitas that yeah. it is European in or is close to what we think today as 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 a European international transnational dimension, right? This idea of being Italian and European, being Spanish and European. Mm-hmm. And and those are two things that sometimes, you know, don't necessarily are they're not easy to coexist. Sometimes they get, you know, in, in conflict with each other, but that's that's part of part of this idea of being European and not European. And that's that's I think part of the greatness and part of the problems that Europe is having today. Hmm. This idea of having different identities that are still not fully settled. <laughs> uh, how we manage, how we navigate all those identities is not necessarily straightforward, not very easy. And I think um, so from, from that perspective, no, obviously he is not thinking about Europe in the way we are thinking about Europe, but he's definitely thinking about kind of a neo-Roman or neo-Latin mm. kind of um, sphere of influence. So he's talking about Europe. Uh, he's talking about Western Europe in many ways. <laughs> uh, and, and so definitely, you know, it's, it's from, the, from the modern perspective, no, but he's definitely talking about something that is close enough to what we think today of Europe um, uh, or Western Europe, at least to, to to call it Europe in a way of simplifying what he was thinking. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. I mean, and, and for Petrarch, it would also have kind of a religious connotation as well, right? It's this mm-hmm. idea of kind of, absolutely you know, Christendom, like this is Latin Christendom. This is kind of what he, this is kind of one of these larger associations as well. One of these larger communities as well. Um, Definitely, yeah. So, I could keep asking you questions about Petrarch, but um, I, I do, <laughs> I do want to get a little bit, a little bit more specific. So I, I do in mm-hmm. some of your recent or some of your earlier work, you do talk a little bit about the way that Petrarch um, depicts triumphs um, in particular, mm-hmm. and so I was wondering just kind of what what it is about these textual moments, these these kind of these descriptions in the text um, that you find particularly interesting, and also what can these moments tell us about Petrarch's work more generally. Um, and then also, if you care to extrapolate a little bit, what, what can this tell us a little bit about medieval literary culture as, as a whole? Yeah, th- that's, a, that's a very good question. Part of my interest is very personal in the sense that as a student, I, I came across this topic and, and I thought it was, I was fascinated by it. I mm-hmm. think it was very, I was very, always very interested. And as a lot of those of uh, decided to get a PhD knows, I think. Sometimes you, you just 
find yourself starting something and you just stick to it <laughs> uh, because you like it, because you've worked on it enough, because it's fascinating and because it stimulates your interest, uh, you know, and sometimes because it's, it's there. And so all those things exist at the same time, right? So I, I got interested in, in the triumphs and I kept studying them because I think the more I studied them, the more I realized that they actually it is very, very interesting and really at the core, again, of a lot of what was happening, particularly in the late 14th and 15th century. And I think in terms of the triumph, I think in a sense we could say, we could see it as a metaphor or as an allegory, if you want, of the recovery of classic antiquity, both from the architectural perspective or the um, artistic perspective, but also from the literary perspective. So the, the triumph is, is an image, it's, a, it's an object, but it's also an image because um, we have the triumph as, a, as an object. And I mean, the depiction of the triumph itself or an um, triumphal arch, for example. Mm -hmm. So we have all these ideas, what Rome used to be and Patrick has a lot of for example, a lot of writing on, on this idea of what Rome used to be and what's left of Rome, right? And so thinking about the Arch of Triumph, that it's still there, but the glory of Rome not, in the sense that medieval Rome was not classical Rome, right? And so, um, so he can still see this leftover of this greatness of what Rome used to be, and, and by that, obviously, he means... Um, Latin literature, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I think it is a good way of looking at why he's so invested in recovering um, all this classical antiquity and all that came with it from the cultural and literary perspective and, and Latin language as well, because then you have, it's, there's also a connection with the start of philology that we're going to find mm -hmm. later in with Latin humanism and, and in Italy and Valla and Nebrija, for example. And so you start having these ideas of we are covered in the language, uh, we apply, um, well, literally philology to that. And, and so they're trying to purify <laughs> the, uh, purify kind of this tradition from the, the, the corruption that went on during the Middle Ages, in a sense, right? That's the mm -hmm. whole idea of, and to put it very simply, of, of a lot of philology that happens in the you know, late 15th century with humanism and with early Renaissance, but to bypass the medieval tradition, but that is a result of the medieval tradition. So that's kind of one of those very interesting moments where they embrace it and deny it at the same time, if you will. I think we all like, we like to, to think about those things from the modern perspective, for sure. <laughs> like this, um, this moment where there are different things going on that some, some um, interesting tension and conflict, if you will. Um, it's actually very, <laughs> very interesting. But the triumphs definitely does, I think, speaks to all of that. And so I think that is very, very interesting to me as a, as a reality, but also as a metaphor and even largely as an allegory of something mm -hmm. that it was going on. It was this recovering this idea of what Latin Dome and Latinity used to be from a cultural history perspective, yeah.
I, I like that a lot. I think that's really interesting. I like this idea of kind of both embracing and kind of really creating distance from at the same time as well. This idea of embracing some aspects of the medieval while kind of simultaneously rejecting the medieval and going back to the ancient, going back to the classical. I mean, mm-hmm. Petrarch's one of the first people who give us this term on um, the Dark Ages as well, right? So this is kind of mm-hmm. this idea of the medieval being this corruption that you need to kind of move away from in, in a sense. Correct, yeah. But at the same time, right, we wouldn't have that without somebody like Petrarch mm-hmm. who's definitely the father of humanism and very medieval at the same time right so again we could talk about uh, where do we draw the line between what's medieval and what's not the 15th century there are people arguing that the 15th century or part of it should not be within the middle ages or it should be a different middle ages and so i think from the historical perspective how we define right uh, those moments, I think that's that's definitely part of that question. Yeah. No, for sure. Um, so I want to talk a little bit. I want to move on. Um, just looking at Petrarch. I mean, he. I mean, you mentioned a little bit um, about kind of his impact, his importance. I, w- I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the way that his work um, compared to some of the other major kind of Italian poets from from this period, um, roughly speaking. So mm-hmm. someone a little bit before him, like Dante, and then someone who's a little bit after him, like Boccaccio. So how is Petrarch kind of fitting in this this time period in this um, kind of the, in this ta- this specific historical context in which in which he lived? Right. Absolutely. So you know, we tend to pair together Dante. And Boccaccio from the Italian perspective, particularly because it's kind of they are the three main, the tre corone, obviously, so the main figures of medieval Italian literature and in and, and poetry and prose, etc. And the truth is that it's that is a really good way to look at it, <laughs> um, but at the same time, by looking at it that way, I think we can have give the false impression that they are. On, they are on, on a stri- there's a straight line that goes from one to the next and they are on a continuum obviously and the cult of Dante was for example very much spearheaded by Boccaccio and we know that Boccaccio was a a big fan <laughs> of Dante and he was trying to convince Patrick that Dante was actually in fact really really great and worth him looking into Dante's work and Patrick was a little bit resisting to that idea, obviously. And so, you know, they go together, but there's also a different aspect that it's interesting to look at. As for the triumph, the triumph itself as a iconography, so as an image, we find in the Commedia once at the end of uh, Purgatory and once in the form of these images that are sculptured on the side of the of the cliff in, in in the middle of the purgatory but the the clear image of a triumph which is a procession right a triumphal procession is is at the end of the of the purgatory and it's very it has a very religious tone right we are at the end of the purgatory we are almost in the, in the paradise so obviously it has a very theological kind of approach. What we find in Petrarch, in the triumphs in particular, it's slightly different. And in a sense, it's a lot closer to what we find in Boccaccio. So it's very allegorical. Mm. It's very uh, more, it's what we call like moralizing, right? So it's like didactical, it's moralizing. 
in the case of Patrick, it has a very specific classical element to it uh, that Boccaccio has as well, but it's working in a very different way. And I think it's good to compare the triumphs with the Amorosa Visione, where do we do have a lot of things in common, but at the same time, what I'd call the humanistic aspect. Um, it's it's different. Uh, the, the way Patrick places himself as a character within the text and interacts with that idea, with the, with the iconography of, of the classic triumphs, it is more modern in the way that we think about the canzoniere as the foundation of modern hmm. idea of self and of a human-centered, individual-centered kind of um, culture. So I think that that's where I think that that comparison becomes really, really compelling. I, I think that's, I mean, that, that's a great point. And I, I kind of want to build on that a little bit. And so for, for the next question then, um, I was wondering if you could just think a little bit. I mean, so Petrarch's often credited with being one of these these thinkers who helps to develop the Renaissance and European humanism in general. You mentioned earlier that that he's often referred to as the father of humanism, which I think is 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 great. I was wondering if you talk a little bit about how his ideas, how this kind of maybe some of these shifts, kind of looking at these this more allegorical approach to some of these things, really helped to to influence and shape the development of humanism and humanistic ideas, as well as the Renaissance more generally. Um, and also, if maybe you could talk just a little bit about how he might have impacted some of these later thinkers as well. I mean, I know you've talked a little bit about the way he influenced some thinkers in medieval Liberia, like the Marquis de Santiana, and also Ausius Mark as well. So if you could just maybe mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that, looking at this kind of connection between, basically, between Petrarch and then these humanistic ideas that are developing, and its impact on some, on some of these later writers as well. Yeah, definitely. I think that we go back to the idea of Dante, Patrick and Boccaccio being kind of the, within the same um, like group together, right? And I think that that's what we see. And I think that's why it's very interesting to analyze the, re- the reception of Italian medieval literature in Iberia. Um, we could extend it to other parts of Europe, obviously. But in the case of Iberia, Castile, both Castile and, and, and the Crown of Aragon, obviously, um, they receive, they they show a very early influence. So we're talking mm-hmm. about early, actually even late 14th century and really early 15th century. When it comes to Petrarch, we could add Bernamegge, for example, Losomni. But I think it's very interesting because the author that it's very, very famous at the time, especially in the early um, 15th century and mid, mid 15th century even more, it, it's definitely Patrick. But Dante is also super famous and is definitely uh, well known. And so in the case of Marquis de Santillana, I think it's very interesting because you have attacks like El Infierno de Enamorados, where the Dante component is it's pretty obvious even in the title it's like it's obviously what they're thinking right at the same time it's not uh uh, inferno in the way that dante imagines it but it's more an infierno in the sense of um allegorical and lyrical sense and so 
you have Santillana that is using the idea of Inferno, but at the same time, he's pairing it with a tradition that we could draw to the Comando de la Rose and to many other um, texts that brings us back to Patrick and to Boccaccio, but he's not mentioning them, but it's clear that he's mentioning Dante in that specific context, but he's thinking about Dante and he's thinking about Patrick and he's thinking about Boccaccio as well. So I think it's very, very interesting to analyze how that happens because it tells us what they're reading, how they are reading it and what's circulating and in which specific, um, which angle they are using to approach this text, basically. So I think that that's something that it is definitely very interesting. The same applied to Asios Mark. When we get to the 15th century, obviously, we have a very strong and direct connection between Iberia, particularly the Crown of Aragon, but Iberia in general, and uh, Italy through Naples. So obviously, the Aragonese conquest of Naples in the, in the 1440s. So a lot of these Aragonese poet, they were in Naples at some point. They had direct contact with the court. Naples is one of the main centers of humanism in Italy in the 15th century. So, you know, again, we have very direct uh, links, but in Castilla as well, obviously. I yeah, I, I think that's really I that's really fascinating. I, I love this these connections between Iberia and Italy. I love kind of looking at the the role that Petrarch and Dante really have as they, they definitely do become kind of models as you're as you're saying. Um I was wondering if you could kind of maybe push this even a little bit further and talk a little bit about humanism in general and looking at some of the connections, some of the development of humanism that we do see in the fifteenth century and really the connection between that this type of European humanism, which is looking back to Petrarch in a sense, and then also this idea of the Renaissance as well. Yeah, definitely. I think if you, I think we could talk, and this is outside of my, <laughs> of, of what I, I would consider myself an expert about, but if you think about the European humanist, which is Erasmus, uh, and you have like a lot of, connection because some of these early humanists have similar careers in a sense, right? So few generation prior, obviously, but in a sense, they are operating in similar ways. They have connections through the use of Latin, um, for sure, that extend across different European countries <laughs> that we, we today are different European countries. And so yeah, I think humanism in that sense, and because of the use of Latin, obviously, mm -hmm. it's very much a transnational uh, or international phenomenon, absolutely. And those contexts are very much well established. They're alive at the time. I don't know, and I don't think we entirely know if when they meet in real life, maybe they can use Italian and Castilian or Italian and Catalan, but or they use Latin, you know, but definitely they, they through Latin, they can be in conversation, uh, literally, with, with a very broad range of, of people, of, of intellectuals across, across well, today we know as Europe, definitely. And spanning from Castile to, to Italy to, to Byzantium as well, because that's something that in the 15th century is very much part of it. I mean, connection with Italy and, and Byzantium, particularly, obviously, in the 1440s and 
Captain Fifth is very, very um, strong. It's just, it's, it's fascinating thinking a little bit about these connections and how they help to kind of really develop this idea of, of Europe as well that we were talking about a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. So actually, I want to jump, I want to kind of focus on this, this idea of Europe, and I want to jump forward in time a little bit. So a lot of your recent work um, concerns this idea of medievalism. And I was mm-hmm. wondering if you could just speak a little bit about what medieval, medievalism is, and also, as we kind of deal with it in society today, how it might also be a little bit dangerous as well. Um, so yeah. for instance, how certain people might use their interpretation of the past, particularly faulty interpretations of the past, to further their own political agendas. Yeah, definitely. I think medievalism is a very, it's very interesting. And, and the, my interest for medievalism really, and or the intersection between medievalism and nationalism or ideas of nation uh, really comes from the, from the, from patriarchism because you have patriarchism being a European phenomenon. So you have poets who write in the way of Patrick, and you have them in Italy, and you have them in France, and you have them in Spain. We're talking about the 16th century here, particularly after Bembo, obviously. Um, we have them in Germany and, and in England as well, and probably in other countries that I don't know of, obviously. So you start seeing this idea of being the Spanish Patrick, hmm. the French Patrick. And so you have this idea of, oh, the, the poet, Patrick, but suddenly people want to be the French version of Patrick, the Spanish version of Patrick. Mm. Uh, in the Iberian Peninsula, is a very good example, and this is a slight departure from your question, but I think it's gonna fit in with uh, with my answer. It's it's, it's very interesting. There's there is, there is work on this, but in the 16th century, Alsace Mark is reclaimed from a Spanish perspective, um, and. Obviously, Alsace Mark writes in Catalan. is known as the first poet to leave behind a Provençal tradition that has been dominant within uh, medieval poetry. And so he writes in Catalan as part of his modernity. But in the 16th century, he is reframed <laughs> as, the, as the last troubadour. So not only is the Spanish Patrick, but he's been the last troubadour is before Patrick. So he's not only the Spanish Patrick, but he's the Spanish author who's even before Patrick. Mm. So w- we start kind of waving in this national pride, so to speak. And obviously it's not a sh- nationalism in, in the modern way. That's no matter how, where you stand, I think on the, on the different way to interpret whether it's a modern or or um, old phenomenon, nationalism, um, there's clearly uh, evidence to to suggest that national pride or national identity uh, already obviously clearly existed back then, and so you know you see that, and that gave me kind of sparked this interest in to to see. Um, where this kind of threat was leading me to. And so I got to the 19th century and then the Victorian age, et cetera. I mean, in, in, in England it's, and, and Germany too, it's pretty, pretty clear. If you get to Italy, um, also the process in the 19th century, the Sorgimento, it's all about recovering this Italianness and the Middle Ages, et cetera. And, and there are many, many examples of that. So 
that's where it's coming from. Um, that's definitely something that we see across Europe, really. Um, mm. You know, and, and in Spain, it's not an exception. In the case of Spain, I think one of those topics that I think are becoming very dangerous, and we've seen that lately, are the idea of the Reconquista, for example, mm. and the idea of a personality or a you know a hero, legendary hero like El Cid, that suddenly is on is used by Vox, uh, for example, with this political within the a very kind of right-wing political discourse of Spain being Christian and 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 the idea of want to close the border and protect Spain from the immigrants, from the immigration from um, Africa and through North Africa uh, as a way of, of, of a second Reconquista and the mm. idea of claiming back the, the, the seed and this idea of Christian um, uh, fighting against um, Muslim invaders, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you, you see that very clear connection there. Um, uh, or the use of Santiago Matamoros, obviously, right? And so uh, there's something that I saw about Santiago is Sierra España. And so, you know, that's, I think, where it becomes very dangerous because when you look at El Cid, I mean, the first, um, the first part of the manuscript we don't have, but the reconstruction that we do through other sources is that part of the problem is that the Cid was helping a Moorish king <laughs> uh, against another Moorish king using an army that was made both of Christian and Muslims. Um, and and the, the idea was that the Moorish king, the Moor king has, um, um, right, el rey moro, no? So the, the, the Muslim Islamic um, king has a treaty agreement um, with the Christian king and Spain you know, it's his kind of allied, and so he has to protect the terms of the agreement, and he's a Christian, you know, knight. So, again, yes, obviously we have a, a religious dimension to the conflict in the Middle Ages, but it's not the same thing. <laughs> so that's, I think, when it becomes really, really, really dangerous. So, so we're seeing these ideas of the Middle Ages, these kind of re, this kind of interpretation of things like El Cid, interpretation of things like the Reconquista, this idea of the Reconquista being reimagined and almost being weaponized in a way and being kind of used as a way to justify specific policies for mm. specific par political parties like Vox, as you, as you mentioned. So. Right. And I think, you know, it has been used, but it's, it has been used in the past. I think La La Leyenda Negra that has mm -hmm. been used against Spain, it's also a form of medievalism to some extent. Um, and, and, and I think we could think about Las Dos Españas as a concept that is also in part related to that, I think, or can read in that lens, that at least it's my, my idea, right? So, yeah, I think, I think so. I think it's very, very interesting to think about it in those, in that, in those terms, right? Um, and also kind of simplify the Middle Ages, which is a thousand years yeah. long, if we get that traditional kind of historiographical, you know, terms. But, you know, a thousand years, and we kind of push them together in, in one specific thing. And obviously, El Cid 
for example, uh, is it belongs to a certain period of time with its own specific characteristic. And, uh, you know, and, and again, the idea of crusade in Iberia or the jihad on the other side, that's, th those comes in play a little bit later, for example, you know, El Poema al Miocid, I think, expressed a slightly different take on that <laughs> idea of convivencia, right? So, again, the problem is using it and simplifying it and um, make it something that becomes like a, a very simple idea that can be used when we are, in fact, talking about something that has a thousand years, you know, like a phenomenon that is a thousand years long, has a lot of complexity, a lot of layers, a lot of different uh, realities. And so, that's you know when you oversimplify something you just you lose the details then it can be can easily become something different i guess okay so kind of looking at this reductionist idea this this reduction of the past to a single a single perspective a single idea and then kind of really using it to to support your own kind of your own thought your own belief yeah yeah i think so correct and and i mean it's been done throughout the 19th and 20th century from the whole idea of creating even a national literature, you know, like what that national literature is, it's, it's creating this idea of, of a straight line through the past, as though the present and the past are exactly the same thing, you know, yeah. and, and, and that's, there is a continuum, obviously there is, but it doesn't mean that it's a straight line that you can trace and that's all the same, it doesn't, nothing changes. Yeah, and, and I think also this, this idea that kind of what, what happened in the past justifies specific things in the present as well is also very kind of faulty and dangerous as well, right? This idea that, oh, this yeah. happened a thousand years ago, so we should do this now. It's, it's kind of a very reductionist idea of, of, of what's happened, a very reductionist idea of history in general as well. Yeah, so. absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and also reading the text from the modern perspective, which is part of what, medievalism is in a sense yeah. right is is interpreting the past from the perspective of the present and i think that's that's problematic because the perspective of the past was very different i think um in some cases we can't know because we can ask but we can read what they left behind and i think even that which is obviously a form of a, a form of construction because that's kind of what it is but even that tells us a different story. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I think I think that's a good a good point to end this conversation. Is kind of thinking about some of the challenges posed by by reading these texts, engaging with engaging with history, and hopefully not kind of resorting to this kind of reductionist or modernist reading of the past as well. So, right. um, Leonardo, thank you so much for your time. Um, I appreciate it. We all appreciate it. Um, Definitely. Thank you so much for for having me, for the wonderful conversation, the great questions, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you, and, and thank you all for listening. And that's it. Everyone take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.